so thankful that you provide fresh air and good food. We take none of the blessings you give us for granted. We thank you that you sustain us hour by hour, moment by moment. We thank you for the grace that you offer so freely. And once again, as we come to fellowship, to think about the work you've called each one of us to, to be your servants, to be lights in this world, to be a channel through which you may bring your blessings to others. May your spirit be here to guide and to bless, to inspire and to encourage. I pray a special blessing upon each one as they present their lives before you. May you guide them. May you bless them. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We ended yesterday speaking about a school in the southern part of the United States. Anyone remember the name of that school? Mm, Madison. Madison. And who were the two primary teachers? And these are, the, the specific dates aren't so important as, as the idea of the people that were involved, the way God was working in their lives, and getting a, a sense of the work he had called them to. Um, it was a very special work, a very specific work. And it was a work that, that heaven wanted to have go forward. Um, I was just reading here. I was looking for a few things that I didn't find. But as I was reading, Ellen White appealed to the, the, the brethren, our church leadership, when it came to Southern McGann. And she says, you know, they worked very hard in Bering Springs. In fact, they worked too hard. They shouldn't have had to work as hard as they did in Berrien, and now they're starting the school in Madison, and they're working so hard that she feared that their health would be sacrificed, or even their very lives. She said if they're left to continue under these difficulties, their health and their lives may be sacrificed, and it's not, God doesn't want this to happen. Now, I share that because as as we uh, look at some of the other ministries and as you enter into a ministry, there's a great temptation to overwork in our supporting ministries. It's, there's so much that needs to be done. People feel such a weight of responsibility. Generally, the financial resources are meager and they just press and they press and they press. And it's for a good reason, but we need to be careful. You know, I look back when I was your age and I was involved in a ministry, the first ministry I was involved in, we worked 18, 20 hours a day, some of us. And that was normal, okay? A 16-hour day was a light day. And it's not good. I look back and I was willing to do it. I was caught up in the vision. This was God's work. This is what he wanted to have happen. And so reading this, I realized it's a heritage that comes on from even Southern and began, that when you have this burden, when you want to see something happen that you believe God is calling you to, there's a temptation to overwork. James White had this temptation, if you read the history of Ellen and James White. You know, James White did the work of five men, often. His wife, this is his wife saying this, and she would rebuke him for it, say, James, you need to stop, you need to slow down. At the same time, there were other people that could have taken up burdens, and they didn't. And they were willing for James White to have to carry those burdens. And she rebuked them as well. But you may find, as God calls you into ministry, whether it's your, a ministry you begin and you pioneer yourself, or it's a ministry that you join, this temptation to overwork will be there. Um, I understand it, but I just want to, at the same time, caution you. God, uh, I read a statement years ago. It said this, Be humble. A lot was accomplished in this world before you were born. <laughs> exactly. That's what I did. I laughed. A lot was accomplished in this world before I was born. I, mean, oh, I guess that's true. And so that puts into perspective. And when I say be humble, you know, it's, it's hey, God can make this happen. And while he wants us to feel the burden, he wants us to feel a responsibility, 
he doesn't want us to sacrifice our health and our lives. Um, and yet the temptation will be there. So we read about Madison, and then we spoke about satellites, little schools that started out from Madison. What people would graduate, they'd go, they'd start a little school. Sometimes four or five families from Madison would go and start a school, start a new institution. And as I mentioned to you, it's interesting, the South was very poor at the turn of the century. And um, these schools were very much appreciated. These sanitariums that they started were very much appreciated. Um, they started nursing homes. And the regulation from the state was not heavy in those days. And so they were easy, when I say easy, from that perspective, it was easy to start a ministry. And people were more willing to see the fruit of your labor then they were eager to see that you had a license. You understand what I'm saying? How you worked, the results you got as you treated patients, that's what they looked like. And if you're getting good results, you're getting good results, and that is your credential. Okay? That's what gives you the right to do what you do. That's all changed now. Madison started an organization called the Layman's Foundation. The Layman's Foundation was an organization that would hold the property to a new ministry. Okay. Here Madison is the center. Madison is producing the teachers, they're producing the leaders for these ministries. And so you go off and you need to buy a piece of land and you need to build buildings and you need to make a significant financial investment. Madison would help raise that money. And when they purchased the property, they would purchase it under the name of the Layman's Foundation. Okay? And then they would allow the school or the sanitarium or whatever it was there to operate. Because the resources, the finances were given through Madison. And then if, a, say, a ministry didn't work after five or ten years, it, it didn't, didn't have the success they had hoped, well, that asset was still available to be sold and then help another group in another place. Now something I found interesting years later, um, um, when I say years later, years, maybe 30 years after I'd been in self-supporting work, maybe 25, um, I was in Africa, for, we were in Africa for about 15 years and then we went back to the United States and I sat on the conference committee for the Georgia Cumberland Conference. And as I sat on that conference, I learned some things. I learned that most of the church schools and even the academy in the Georgia Cumberland Conference had all started out as Madison institutions. Madison graduates had gone out and started all these schools. And eventually the church, the conference, adopted them and, and took them over, let's say. The Conference Academy used to be a Layman's Foundation Academy. The other thing I found interesting was that the Southern Union, that at the turn of the century was very poor, was now very wealthy. The United States, this is, this is not, I just want you to take this as fact, not as anything else, but roughly 93% of all the money in the Seventh-day Adventist Church comes from the United States. The majority of the money in the United States comes from the Southern Union. The Southern Union has the greatest single tithe return and offer return of any other union in the world. How comes that? Yeah. Isn't that interesting? How comes that? What's that? How comes that? How come? You know, you say, why would this happen? I would say that many of the people who have generated significant tithe and offer returning to the church are people who started their business out of these satellites. There's, there's, you meet people in the southern part of the United States, many of them have a connection to the Madison School. 
No, no, I'm saying that that is a direct oh, point. But there is, there is a connection between the work that's been done in the Southern Union. The Southern Union has more supporting ministries, more self-supporting schools than anywhere else in the United States. It's just kind of interesting that God blessed uh, the economy of the whole area. And the Madison School had a part to play in bringing up the level of education, the level of life, the quality of life in those in those areas, in those states. So the Layman's Foundation was formed and many self-supporting institutions were part of the Layman's Foundation. As there were so many supporting ministries, the denomination um, wanted to find a way to where the workers in the supporting ministries and the workers in denominational work could unite their labors, work together effectively, and to try to break down barriers that would inevitably arise as a result of having, quote, two different systems. Okay? You got people that are paid by the conference, paid by the church and their workers, and then you have a network of ministries that are supporting ministries doing a very similar work, but not by the denomination. And so ASI was formed, and ASI stood for Adventist Services, Adventist Self-Supporting Institutions. That was the, the original. Now it's Adventist Layman Services and Industries, but it was Adventist Self-Supporting Institutions. And Sutherland had his office at the General Conference at the North American Division, which hosted the General Conference. And this was to build a bridge, a link between um, supporting ministries, self-supporting institutions and the church. Um, does the Layman's Foundation exist today? Yes, the Layman's Foundation does exist today. Um, interestingly enough, it, it has shrunk, let me say. It has, it has um, over the years, you know, Madison eventually closed, um, a core board remained, they held title to these properties, they encouraged those ministries, but over the years, it has become less active, let me say. But it is still in existence today. Um, so ASI was developed for this purpose. And for years, ASI operated as Adventist self-supporting institutions. And they would have their convention. And it would be people who were running self-supporting schools. And they would come together and have their conventions. But... Over time, for some reason, that also started to become less. And ASI opened the doors to say, okay, well, let's have health professionals and business people become part of ASI. And so back in the 80s, primarily, and then it grew in the 90s, you had an organization within ASI that was a merger of self-supporting institutions, supporting ministries, and business professionals within the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And that's, that's what it is today, um, in North America at least, and in other parts. It's a, it's a mixing of these two entities. And I think there's a lot of very positive uh, dynamics that come out of, of bringing these two groups of people together. Um, it changed ASI, okay, because... By, by becoming larger and embracing a much broader um, group of people, it, it naturally changes the dynamic. Have you been a member of a small church? By that I mean 50 people or less. <laughs> Have you been a member of a large church? Okay. Some, yeah. All right. It, just where we're staying now in the United States, you know, we prefer small churches. But the College Dale Church has 3,000 members. Okay. I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm just saying, now to be a member of a church with 3,000 members is very different than being a member of a church with 50 members. Right? You, you understand? And just the dynamics of how church functions is very, very different. A pastor with a membership of 40, 50 people, he operates one way. A pastor of a church with 3,000 members, well, 
He has to operate a different way, just by sheer numbers. And so ASI changed just by the type of membership and the numbers that came on board. I remember being at ASI when we raised for the first time $100,000. Now $100,000 was a lot of money to raise at an ASI convention. In one convention? Yeah, this is just one convention. Okay, and at that convention, I remember having, there may have been 15 booths. 15. 15, one five. Okay, 15 booths of different ministries. Like, like you see Wildwood here, and you see Madison School, booths like that. There were 15 of us. Okay. Well, within 15 years, ASI, I was there at ASI, and we had an offering of $4 million on Sabbath. And probably 300 booths in the exhibit area. Have you been, have any of you been to an ASI convention in the States? Okay, then you know what I'm, that's a mini GC session. I mean, you can get, you can get lost in there, okay? It's a big convention center. There's booths of, okay? And it's very inspiring. It's very uh, educational. You, you can talk to, to Jesse Zwicker from Honduras with Jose. And you, you know, you, you talk to people from, that are doing in China and people that have ministry in Africa. And it's a very... Um, inspirational convention. In the early 80s, I would say out of Wildwood, some of you have heard of Wildwood. Wildwood was, grew out of the Madison experience and then Wildwood started to send out workers and send out graduates and they started some self-supporting schools, self-supporting institutions. And and while these ministries attended the ASI convention, they also started to attend one another's convention. Okay, Wildwood have its annual convention, and some people from a place called Uchi Pines would come. And then some people from up at Oak Haven would come, because they were self-supporting institutions as well. And so a burden came upon a man named Warren Wilson. He was the president of Wildwood, um, and and he wanted to see these self-supporting institutions that were now starting to be further apart geographically to come and support one another. Okay. Warren's vision included Europe. He came over here and he found a place in southern France named La Chapelle. Little school, little farm, organic farm in the southern part of France. A lady, French lady, Adventist, she and her husband had a burden for young people. And La Chapelle was an amazing experience. There's nothing like it that I know of anywhere in the world. Um, young people would come there from anywhere. They heard about, oh, there's an organic farm in southern France. And you would come with your sleeping bag in your tent. And you set up your tent and you sleep in it. And as long as you would work on the farm, you could eat. And you could stay a week, you could stay two weeks, you could stay six months. Okay, and you just became part of the La Chapelle family. And my wife and I spent six months there. I was so impressed with this place. We would be doing translation in seven, eight languages in the evening. Every morning we would have worship and we would sing and read God's word. And every evening we would have worship and sing and have God's word. And the rest of the time we would plow in the fields with the horses or harvest carrots or everybody was assigned work responsibility. And it was really an amazing experience. And over the years, they had over 100 baptisms in that little school there at La Chapelle. And then up here in Norway, there was a doctor named Arvid Hoganvik and Eric Soman, some people that they were thinking, hey, you know, we need to do medical missionary work. And they started Fredheim. Uh, some of you familiar with Fredheim? Okay. They've been there operating. And, you know, I remember coming here in 1982 and little train station in Scottsdale, and the first Fred Heim was right across from the train station, and, and we had a little convention, and people from France came, and, you know, uh, it was great. Okay. And they had a vision to do medical missionary work. And so Warren said, listen, we need to find a way to encourage and support these little ministries that are, that are happening, and then we need to help start new ministries. And with that vision, an organization called Outpost Centers International 
was started. And over the years, they became, in one way, what ASI was originally, okay? A, a network of self-supporting institutions. Um, but more than just being a network, they wanted, uh, Warren's vision was to encourage any church member that felt a call to do missionary work and help them in whatever way OCI could to accomplish that goal. And so, you know, you, you may just be living in a somewhere and you hear about this work of a, of a ministry, you, you get a burden and you come and say, hey, how can, how can we do this? And Warren would, would do everything he could to help you as a family. Or if there were a group of families that wanted to do a ministry, then hey, let's help them any way we can to go forward with the work of God that God has put upon their heart. It wasn't trying to give you a burden or tell you what your burden should be. It was more just to nurture you in the burden that God had placed upon you. And so over the years, OCI has members that are literally all over the world. We've got ministries in Australia, in New Zealand, in China, in, in India, in Africa, all throughout South America, North America, um, that have been nurtured and encouraged through the OCI family of ministries. Now, I'll give you one example that, that I'm very intimate with. As after we left, after we were in Africa about 15 years, we were working within the OCI family. Uh, Warren Wilson had asked that I go over to Africa, and my wife and I went, and there's a place there called Riverside Farm. And Riverside's a beautiful ministry, mangoes, papayas, bananas, I mean, it's great. It's just, uh, but we train people in agriculture, in tailoring, <coughs> in medical missionary work, we built a lifestyle center. But as our students were getting developed, different chiefs of different areas in Africa would come and say, hey, listen, we need a school out where we are. And a couple of our graduates and their families would get together and they would accept the call. And we would go out and find a piece of bush in that chief's area, put up our tents, and we would start to build an institution. And then the union of different unions in Africa, the church would say, hey, listen, will you come here? Will you come to Tanzania? Will you come to Madagascar and start medical missionary work? And so we would respond. We'd go see them. We'd visit them, we'd, you know, whatever country it was. And we'd look around with our church leaders. And then we would plant a ministry. And many of those ministries are still there today, most of them. And many new ones are in the process of beginning. Well... I went from Africa, OCI asked if I would come back and be the president of OCI. And so we prayed about it, we ended up back at OCI. About 1999-2000, the Portuguese Union came over to visit a doctor at Wildwood. And that doctor's name was Mariato Ferreira. He's Portuguese, his wife Marianne, the South African, also a physician. They had gone to Wildwood to learn lifestyle medicine preventive medicine. Okay, the idea is rather than just treating people with, with medication and treating the symptoms, let's teach people how to live right. Let's help them reverse their diabetes, let's help them reverse their obesity, let's, but then let's help them develop a lifestyle so they don't need to be taking drugs. Okay, just in a nutshell. So, Veriato was there getting training. The Portuguese Union president came to him and said, hey, we need medical missionary work in Portugal come back to Portugal and start medical missionary work. So Veriato came to see me. I'd been doing the Youth for Jesus programs and, and with our Youth for Jesus, we started to incorporate a thing called the Health Expo. Are you familiar with Health Expo? Yes. Great tool, wonderful tool. And, and uh, Elder Charles Cleveland, who had invited me to go to Africa, was the fellow who at this point in time was developing the Health Expos. And Chuck got very much involved in helping lifestyle centers begin. So, Veriato and I had met when he came to help with the Health Expo, uh, when we're doing Youth for Jesus. So we became friends, so he came to see me in my office. And he told me the story about the union president, and he says, what do you think? And I said, what do I think? What do you think? They're asking you to move to Portugal and start medical missionary work. He says, I don't want to do it. I said, oh, fine. 
But we don't have to talk about it. They're not asking me to move to Portugal and start medical mission work. They're asking you. And he says, well, I don't want to do it, but I don't have any peace. Oh, well, you don't have any peace. you got a problem. You, gotta, you, you have to figure that one out yourself. Okay? If you don't have peace, say no. If you think this is of God, then you have to deal with it. Well, as he prayed about it, he says, I think we should go look at it. So three weeks later, we flew to Lisbon. We met with Elder Brito and the union leaders, and we heard their burden to start medical missionary work in Portugal. And very active in his life, prayed about it. They said, we will respond if God will open the way. So they went home. They started living, I shouldn't say home, because Portugal was never really home to them, but they went to Lisbon, and we started praying. And we started looking for the resources. And so through God's providence, we were able to pull together about 50000 or $80,000, I forget. And we went over. We found a place to rent and started to renovate a walk-in clinic in downtown Lisbon. A rent. You didn't buy No, no, we didn't buy. Not in Lisbon. And, and, and so we, you know. Why did you need so much money? Hmm? So why did you need the... Uh, so because the, 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 the place we found to rent needed to be completely renovated and then it needed to be turned into doctor's offices. Mm -hmm. And so it was more than just the consulting rooms. We had a, a big room like this to, where we could do lectures and do programs and we had in the back so we could do hydrotherapy and, and then there was a kitchen. and So it was, it was quite a big area that we were renting and renovating. And each year... I would go and I would go out into the countryside with the very auto looking for a place on which to build a lifestyle center. Okay, because the vision is always to have a lifestyle center outside the city with a school of health promotion, with a medical missionary school. Okay, that's kind of a package that Ellen White uh, had put together way back in the Madison days. With a, every sanitarium, we should have a school and they can be, um, they can complement each other. The students can get training, and at the same time, the students can provide labor. And patients love to have young people working with them. Okay, if you ever get that opportunity, you will see it's it's a it's a very soothing and very therapeutic experience for adults to have young people helping them with their health. It's just tremendous. And, and Ellen White had counseled we should do it, so we went looking for property, and we looked at, at many different pieces of property. And, and Barry Hatter brought me to a place up on a hill, up in the mountains, and he just thought, man, this place is great. Now, I've been doing this for all my adult life, and there's a trend we have in self-supporting work to, to, to get things that we think are wonderful but really aren't. We get these big old pieces of property that are for a low price, but they got lots of work. So I looked at this property, no doors, no windows, totally run down, huge buildings. I said, Varianto, it's too much work, it's too much money. Keep looking. And I transitioned out of being OCI president. So the next year, my good friend Charles Cleveland and Marcus Yadis, the new OCI president, they go to Portugal. And Varianto takes them to the property and they say, oh man, this is great, you ought to get it. So what does he do? They pray about it and they get it. And so on the back of the OCI magazine, I see that they bought it and that they want to raise $650,000 to fix this place up and have it operate as a lifestyle center. And I looked at it and I said, good luck, good luck. $650,000, not even the beginning. But hey, I'm just, that's just my opinion. So several years go by. In fact, it was five years from the time I first looked at the property to the time I visited again. OCI was having their annual retreat in Prague. And I went, and my wife wanted to visit Portugal and see how Variato and Marianne were doing. So now they own the property, and Variato takes me up there, and we're going through it, and he says, well, now that we own it, what do you think? I said, Variato, this place is worse than I remember. Okay? This place is a disaster, but you own it. Do yourself a favor. Knock it down. Okay. He's never built. And he's a great physician. He's a good physician, but he, no practical background. These things are monster buildings. They're like caverns. I mean, they're... Anyway. 
So that was my opinion. As we're navigating around the property, we climb through the forest up these stairs, and there's a couple of old houses. No doors, no windows, vandalized, dilapidated. And my wife says, oh, what are you going to do with these? And Marianne says, oh, those are going to be staff houses. I said, really? And my wife says, well, what staff are going to live in them? And I'm thinking, what do you care what staff are going to live in them? I mean, <laughs> you know, what kind of question is that? And Marianne says, oh, we thought you and Kim would live in this house, and then we would live here, and you would come and help us fix that. And I said, yeah. And I laughed, just like you're laughing. Said, that is not going to happen. Well, let me tell you, it did happen. <laughs> and the guy who told them not to buy the property was the, was the guy who got to go and live on the property. Okay? And we lived in a little caravan, seven feet, two meters wide by three meters long, for eight months. The first winter it rained every day. For three months it rained every day. It was miserable weather there that year. Okay? But God provided the resources and over that time. Now... There's two consulting rooms, a dental office that's operating. We have a pioneer student program for the last four years. We take six to eight young people from all over Europe. We have uh, health guests coming. We have treatment rooms. We have, it's not completed, but it's there. And that is an example of the type of work that OCI gets involved in pretty much around the world. Um, and there's probably 70, 80 ministries that are part of the OCI family at this point in time. Now, there's many supporting ministries that are not members of OCI or ASI. More and more are becoming members uh, of both organizations. You're familiar with Lifestyle TV. They're a member of, uh, of ASI. Weimar, some of you know about Weimar? Mm -hmm. Great school out on the West Coast. They're members of ASI. Uh, they started kind of in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, Weimar started. And so around the world, there's these self-supporting institutions. There's these small ministries that are operating. Country Life in uh, Prague is probably one of the larger OCI ministries that got started in Europe. Um, interesting to me, remember I told you about that little farm in southern France? Well, out of that little farm in southern France, when, when Madame Pinet died, who was the mother of that project, it was their personal farm, out of that, some of the leaders of La Chapelle ended up starting Country Life Paris. And Country Life Paris, for many years, was a very strong ministry. It had a restaurant in downtown Paris, and it had an outpost outside. And at the outpost, we had treatment rooms, and we had a training school. And hundreds of young people from all over Europe came in to Country Life Paris. And out of Country Life Paris, Country Life Prague, Country Life Basel, Country Life Marseille, all those ministries started from that experience. Otokar, who is in Prague, was a professional photographer. That was his profession. Under the dictatorship in Czechoslovakia. He came to Country Life. He and his family, they learned about medical missionary work, they worked, they learned about the vegetarian restaurant and health ministry, went back, and in 1990, right when he gets home, the Berlin Wall comes down. And he gets this idea, we're going to start a natural foods business, we're going to start vegetarian restaurants, we're going to start a medical missionary program, and since 1990 till now, about what, 23 years, an amazing ministry has developed in Czech Republic. They have three restaurants in downtown Prague. They have an outpost. They have an organic farm. They have the, one of the largest uh, organic wholesale food companies in the Czech Republic. It's an amazing ministry. It, they've had hundreds of baptisms just in their restaurants. What do you mean? They're, they're workers. As people would come and work in the restaurant, they learn auto, through Autocar and his team about this you know, about the gospel message, mm -hmm. and they would be baptized. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, now, you know, there's three restaurants instead of one. They have about eight or nine lifestyle programs going on throughout the year. Now, they have chosen not to own a facility. They rent a facility. And they go, and they rent it for the time they have the lifestyle program, and then they walk away, and whoever owns that facility takes care of it. 
Very good idea. It's very expensive to own property. Very expensive. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's not easy to make this thing financially viable. It takes a lot of energy and a lot of work to make a self-supporting ministry viable financially. That's one aspect of OCI. Over the last five or six years, more and more, we have encouraged family ministries. And we call those associate members of OCI. Okay, to be a member, you have to have a nonprofit corporation. You have to have a board of directors of at least five people, three of whom are not related. Okay, because you have to have distance. Madison School is a good example of an OCI member. Fred and I. But say there's a couple, or there's two couples, and they want to do a ministry, and they can't afford to go to the extent of a Madison or the extent of a Fred Hine, but they want to open their home, have treatment rooms, and do lifestyle care on a home level. Well, more and more, we are helping these people to start their own home ministry. And so it's smaller, but the vision is the same, the desire is the same, and we give our support any way we can to help them be successful at that level. Um, so that kind of brings, you know, from Southern McGann and Battle Creek, leaving, starting Madison, to now. There has always been a challenge between supporting, uh, I say challenge, I wish I could use another word, uh, challenge, as supporting ministries get started. And that challenge often comes from other church members and from the denominational workers. They are used to ministry happening a certain way. And then when lay people start responding to a specific call from God and get a burden to do something, they're not always sure how to relate to it. And so many supporting ministries, especially in the early stages, have had um, need to negotiate with the conference leadership or with the union leadership because it's a strange phenomenon to them. Okay. Yeah, just just on that point here, actually in Scandinavia, there was uh, there yeah, have been actually some uh, some documents that come from union, for example, two months ago wanting them to, to sign a document saying like, yeah, like this is what we think you're doing, are you doing this, or like a kind of agreement between the union and the... Okay. Union. Is that working well? There is, uh, right now there is great relations between... Right. Union, but, that, but it's just because of the, the history of Madison School as such, because it was started as a church school mm -hmm. and then became a supporting ministry. Okay. So it uh, has an interesting history. Okay. But yeah, as far as I, uh, as far as I know, that, that contract is still not signed. But it's, but there's still a good relationship. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, even in Portugal, where the union invited us to come, and it was, it's been great. I mean, Elder Brito was the conference union president when we started. He's now at the division. He's a man I love dearly. He's a, he's a terrific guy. Then the next union president was Elder Teixeira, who was his secretary when we started. And he's on our board. Elder Brito's on our board. In fact, Portugal's got division, union, conference. We, we have more church workers on the board than we do lay people on the board. Okay? And so it's very positive. Having said that, there's many people in the Portuguese Union that wish we didn't exist. Okay? They see us um, as a, something they don't know what to do with. They don't know what to make of. And so there's, and my point is, there's there's need for constant communication, constant encouragement, and building of positive relationships with our church leaders. And and sometimes lay people get a burden. God's put it on their heart. They go out to do it, and they don't see the necessity or don't take the time to develop the relationships with church leaders that will make life so much better if we will develop those relationships. Okay. And the other thing, it's, it's what people, in English we have a saying, what people are not up on, they're down on. Okay. What they don't know about, they, they're not positive about. 
So I go the other way. I give them more information than what they want. Okay. And, and the truth is, God's blessing will become apparent. In Africa, it was clear how God was blessing Riverside in the work that we were doing. We couldn't respond to all the calls from churches and unions and the division that they wanted us to respond to. Okay. That's a good problem to have. So, so your advice would be to kind of over-communicate, even though... Sure. And, and it's delicate, because you want to communicate, but you don't want to ask permission. Yeah. Okay? There's, 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 there's a, now, even with Riverside, okay, and, and let me tell you, um, Riverside is greatly appreciated by everybody I know. Okay? When Neil Wilson, Elder Ted's father, was the General Conference President, he came to visit us at Riverside. Okay? I mean... Um, GC presidents, vice presidents, division presidents, you know, I've hosted all of them in our home and at Riverside. We have good relationships. At the same time, there are people who believe that if Riverside was a faithful ministry, we would sign our property over to the union and that they would own it and that they would decide the de leadership decisions at Riverside. Okay? No, that's not going to happen. Okay? That's... It's not going to happen, okay? <laughs> um, it can't happen, okay? Because that's not God's plan. And so it's very important, as I said, on an ongoing basis to negotiate and to nurture these relationships. But those properties, those, those properties, mm -hmm. just because you mentioned now, belong to the OCI as um, medicine belong to the lay... No, or? no, they don't. All of these ministries have what we call a non-profit association. And that non-profit association has a board of directors. <laughs> that board of directors is responsible for that ministry. And so each property is owned, like, like the Hartgood Foundation here in Norway is a separate nonprofit board that is responsible for that asset. Okay? And then in Portugal, you have the Portuguese Association of Preventive Medicine and we have a board of directors and they are responsible for that piece of property and for for the governance. Right, the board the association owns it and the board of directors governs it, okay? They are the stewards of, of, of that. And as far as possible, that is the safest way to set up a ministry. Some countries don't allow it, and so in each country you have to navigate. Yeah, so, so you would mean like uh, almost kind of a holding company, so you start... Correct. A holding company that under the holding company would have, for example, for profits. Like in, in, in a sense of a self-supporting ministry, but like country like like a restaurant, right, or right. A whole food store, or something, like right. That. that would kind of be a for-profit, but a supporting, uh, like, right, yeah. Sometimes to to do that, and again, every country is different, okay. But in in Czech Republic, if you want to do business, you can't do it under a non-profit. <laughs> but you create a commercial company, and all the shares in the commercial company mm -hmm. are owned by the non-profit. Okay, mm -hmm. so you, you you have the same governing body, but you you create a legal entity in the country you're in. In America, you can be a nonprofit and you can generate income and still be a nonprofit. Okay, but in other countries, you you do it differently. Like going back to you said that medicine, since start growing in several ministries, they started this foundation, Lay Layman's Foundation. Layman's Foundation. And that was the foundation. It means that the only mean of the foundation was only the property. Correct. Correct. Not, not operating. Correct. Correct. That was my question. Right. Has anything else started from there? I thought that OCI was something like this, like OCI was... No, right. OCI, right. But no, OCI generally does not own any property that the ministries operate on, generally. There may be one or two exceptions, but as a, as a structure, our interest is not to own the property. Okay? Some people think that's a mistake. Okay? But it is the way it is right now. 
I would like to ask you how do you, for example, yeah. from your experience, how do you handle this kind of, of matter? Okay. Uh, I give you an example. In, in my country, uh, from where I'm coming, it's if you have a non-profit organization, something like this, which develops something under the church science, not church science. You are Adventist and you are doing something. You all, you, you, many times you are fighting with this problem. Members of the church union or, I don't know, not necessary union, the members from a big church which are their kids or relatives are involved in this thing, are trying to get in, mm -hmm. to put their sign, like, oh, why, why, why I don't know about this project because I'm the, I don't know, the secretary of the right, union or right, something right, like that. Right. How do you handle with this kind of problems? And those people, I, I was involved in one of the cases which was uh, quite uh, with a happy end, very nice end. But I observed in many other cases that they are, uh, when something is happening which is not under the church, the church, Adventist church sign. Mm -hmm. That exactly the church members, not the members, the board members of the union members, are trying to get involved without nothing, uh, without knowing nothing about what is happening, mm -hmm. which is the purpose exactly, like you said, mm -hmm. being connected with the members, just putting questions. Uh, why we don't know about this? You should make it like this, like this. And the project is, so how, okay. well, how you, did, did you have this kind there's, of... Yes, you all, often you have this dynamic, okay, and there's two parts to it. Knowing about it, and then saying, you should do this, this, and this. Okay. It's great for them to know. I mean, I think we should share freely. Yes, but I mentioned, when you start asking for permission, then you have accepted authority. If I ask your permission, that means I believe you can give me permission. Okay, now if I believe God's called me to it, then I'm not going to ask his permission. Okay, I want to work in harmony with him. But you know, the, there's good reason why church leaders want to control things. There are very good reasons. Many times people do things they ought not to do. Okay, and, and it ends up being an unfortunate scene for the church. Now, the Georgia Cumberland Conference, where I was in, in America... At one point, they wanted to make a rule. The conference committee wanted to vote. No one could do evangelism without the permission of the conference. Come on. Okay? Exactly. And we said, well, wait a minute. The church members are supposed to go out and give Bible studies. Right. Everybody that's going to go give a Bible study has to write us, and we have to sit in the committee and vote yes, whether this person can give Bible studies. Okay. Okay. Oh, you do it that way. I'm sorry. We have to. Okay. You know. Okay. Now, now this goes against Scripture. Jesus said, "Go ye into all the world and teach." Okay. You can't try to have that type of control on your church, or your church will die. If you exercise that control, the church will die. That's because why you need that in the maybe it's you see we can't go contrary to Scripture. It's not safe to go contrary to Scripture. Okay, and as we discuss, as this topic was discussed in the executive committee, they understood. Hey, wait, wait, wait! We can't, we can't make this rule. This would not be appropriate for us to make this rule. Okay, and so, but again, that doesn't leave room just to say God's told me to do this, so I don't care what you say. I'm going to go do it. You see, the attitude we have needs to be kind, it needs to be tender, it needs to be appropriate. At the same time, you need to stand firm. If God's called you to do it, then you you need to do it. Sometimes, no matter how kindly, tenderly, <laughs> and softly right. you say, just okay. the fact that you're going to okay. do it, for them is a, a lack of respect. Sure, know. I agree. No, it's, I, I think it's like, in, in, in some churches it's like this. And I met this kind of people, and it's like sometimes we can be this kind of people also. But is this uh, phenomenon that somebody comes in front and he says like, "Oh, we are a dead church. We are not doing nothing. We are not 
going outside, outreaching, or why are we like this, where we don't have more energy. And in two, three months, a very simple person without too many leadership qualifications or like that person who uh, first uh, talked, starts something and starts something good involving other leaders. And the first person comes and tries to get in in, 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 in that project. Why, why are you doing this? We don't need this. But he just talked that that church is that and is this feeling of you don't want to do something you are dead but if somebody does something you want to be involved and make it in your way which is like kind of right you know well god help us that's all i can you know is that each local church has to work through yes. these dynamics and they're very real okay i mean uh usually i'll give you an example in supporting ministries people tend to be very conservative by comparison to others, okay? They read Ellen White's writings, they, they start to embrace these ideas about education, about health, about dress, about, okay, so, and, and they're navigating, okay? Now, a young lady came to me from England, we were having a convention, and she does ministries for children. And she's got lots and lots of children coming. So a church member went to see what she was doing. And she had a great program, but she was using these puppets to, to okay? And so at the end, the lady said, you know, I really like what you're doing, but you need to stop using the puppets. You know, those puppets, they're, they're offensive, you know. And the girl took it very well. She said, you know what, well, let me go with you, and I'll see what you're doing. I'll learn from you, and then I'll have an idea. But, you know, I use the puppets because that's... And the lady says, well, I'm not doing anything. <laughs> and she says, fine, when you do do something, then I'll come with you. But in the meantime, I'm going to use puppets because that's what I know how to use. Okay, and that's that's a perfect illustration of what people like to they like to criticize. Okay, it's unfortunate. Yeah, I just wanted to add that in in our country Latvia, uh, we had uh, a, a bad reputation of people that were doing this uh, health ministry because they were uh, imbalanced, and uh, you know, and, and therefore uh, church leaders were just you know frightening for every step they were doing and uh, yeah and also they were not very uh, uh, nice people to be with and so that's very important that we are you know we are we are balanced we are uh, we amen are, yeah whatever that means balance you know whatever yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah I hear you I can't define it you know yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. but yeah, but I understand I understand what you're saying and you know God is going to have to give us individually wisdom and at the moment that these things happen we need the Holy Spirit to help us know what words to speak what words to leave unsaid and and conscientiously try to do the work we believe God wants us to do and at the same time seek to have harmony as best we can and I want to say I will come to you there's there's we have church leaders that are very godly leaders. They're wonderful men. They're men that are sacrificing. They're men that for years are giving their lives into God's work. And, and they need our support. They need our encouragement. And that should be the work that we do. And as we develop these relationships, their influence can speak on our behalf. Okay, I, I was one day in Africa, in Kibidula. We're starting a ministry. We're involved in a, in a very comprehensive uh, program with hundreds of thousands of dollars coming in and I have Elder Folkenberg who's the general conference president at that time in the vehicle. I have the union president with me and I have the division president with me. Okay, So we have all the the leadership that has authority in that part of Africa mm -hmm. including Elder Folkenberg and, and the union president was asking why our ministry was entitled to be doing certain things and certain activities and receiving funding and why it didn't go through the union. Okay? And that was very troublesome to him. Okay? Now, Elder Falkenberg's not here, but Christian is here. And so Elder Falkenberg was sitting to me, and I said, well, you know, let me explain that to you because the funds were coming from a donor in America. This donor in America, he's giving this money to get a certain job done. And when that job doesn't get done, he wants to reach over, he wants to grab somebody by the neck 
And he wants to have somebody that's going to be accountable for what's happening. And I was the GC president, I grabbed. Okay? And he looked at me, we're friends, other folks are and, and he laughed, okay? Because he knew the donor. And he knew that's exactly what was happening. Is that too often, if there's too many layers of bureaucracy, people can't get accountability. And since I had a personal relationship with these people, they wanted accountability. And they would get accountability, and so then they, they felt comfortable. And the division president, the union president, obviously at some point you, you, you have to accept because you have no option. But my point is, is that God has opened the way to create these relationships with church leaders, and these leaders can speak on our behalf. And they can, they can try to help negotiate when problems arise and you have someone that doesn't understand um, the dynamics of what you're trying to do. But if they speak on your behalf, that, is, that gives you credibility. You had a question? Yeah. My question is, uh, since you're leading ASI Europe, or responsible for such rights? ASI Europe is what? Are, are you responsible for? Are you leader? I am one of the vice presidents in ASI Europe. What's the vision ASI has for Europe? What the vision do they have? What wish? What vision do they have for Europe? Wishes. Vision. 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 Okay. Well, I think part of, and I'm, I will answer your question the best I can. Up until July, I never. I should say, be careful what I say. <laughs> to be honest. I don't know. Up until up until July, I had not had the privilege to associate with ASI Europe. I didn't know anybody. I didn't think anybody knew me. Okay, and uh, I spent most of my life in Africa. I spent five years here, and maybe six years in Europe total. But I didn't have a very uh, intimate relationship with ASI Europe, and so. In July, they asked me to do a seminar at the convention, which was in Portugal, and I was living in Portugal. So that made sense. I went, and for an hour and a half, I did a, a medical, you know, seminar in medical missionary work, and I went home. And the next day, Elder Maurer, who's the secretary for one of you, uh, a division in Bern. I don't know the name of it anymore. It used to be Euro-Africa Division. Now it's... Yeah, now it's Okay, something else, division. And he called me and said, hey, I'm here at the ASI Europe nominating committee, and you've been nominated to be vice president of evangelism. And I started laughing. I said, what is this? I don't even know anybody. You know? And um, turns out, you know, I did go back on Sabbath, and I met with the, with the ASI leaders and tried to get from them what their expectations were and why in the world did they want an American to, to be a vice president in ASI Europe. And the main answer I guess is, well, you're not really American, so we can, you know, we, we can work together, okay. Um, oh, that's maybe an honor, I don't know. Um, so, but, but from what I could get, and I've only met with them face-to-face -face during that one Sabbath, okay. My sense is, they would like to empower and nurture ministry in two areas, with youth and with potential ASI members, okay? Uh, is anyone here from Lithuania? No. I don't know if Lithuania has an ASI group. Does Latvia? Well, no. Well, none of them. Okay. Just, just the beginning. Uh, Estonia? Someone here from Estonia? Someone's... No. All right. Norway has an ASI chapter. Is that true? Scandinavia. Scandinavia. Oh, Scandinavia has one for, right. for Sweden. See, that's how ignorant I am. Yeah. And I don't know if it's a union thing or a country thing. But the idea is to help nurture ASI chapters in countries where there is no chapter. Okay, ASI, I should explain, is part of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Okay, It's an office in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. When Sutherland became the secretary, North American Division... General Conference, each division has got an ASI person. Not in Europe. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, no. Elder Mauer. Uh huh? Not in Europe. Not in Europe. Well, I'll have to check. I, mean, I can be wrong. Mm -hmm. is, but, is ASI, uh, ASI board is uh, church leaders? Yes. 
on that board. It's not like uh, no, there are not not church leaders in the inside. Okay, we will have to discuss this <laughs> because as I as I've been listening to the officers now, the two divisions had your meetings recently. Okay, the division. You familiar? Divisions have meetings sometimes of of leaders from all over the division. They mm -hmm. come together and they have an annual council or they have yes. something like that. Okay, the president of ASI Europe is invited and present in these meetings uh, yeah, and to, repre to represent and to start this uh -huh. relationship development between ASI and like church leadership. Montenegro? Yes, yes, Rene Metz was there. He's the president of ASI Europe, and I heard and he, was, he was there. He was. I heard he was there. Okay. And opposite way around, when there is the ASI Europe uh, meeting right. board, one or two of the division oh. leaders, the, okay. the president of the two divisions of Europe, right. are invited. Well, I understood at the ASI Europe meeting in Porto, where I was, Elder Maher, who is the secretary of the division, was the chair of that ASI board. If that was, it was the first time. Okay, but he, okay. Others, okay, but that's, that's my only exposure is what happened in Porto. So, I believe those relationships and those offices are being established. Mm -hmm. Part of the reason for that is that if someone becomes a member of ASI, it gives credibility to that ministry. It gives standing because ASI is part of the church, the ministry is part of ASI, and there is, a, there is this link of credibility. And that's what we would like to, when you talk about a vision for the future, you know, I've talked with a few people here, they want to start a ministry, they're having the difficulties we're discussing, and, um, you know, how do we move forward? And so by helping ASI chapters get formed, that will be a step in helping there to be ASI membership in the local country, which will give credibility to the ministry. And um, ASI Europe has um, funds that they want to use to help youth evangelistic activities throughout the division. Okay, so as as not just youth, but, but other, but they like to focus on youth. Um, say you guys come up with a vision of evangelism you would like to do. You write a proposal, you submit it to ASI, ASI looks at it and says, hey, is this the type of work that we could help financially support? Not only financially, maybe that we can give some logistical support or give some, some input of that nature. Time up. Yeah, a little bit more than that, but I have a question. If you mean support, do you mean, for example, mission trips, or do you mean, like, institutions? Tuition? No, like, uh, do you mean... Institutions. Do you mean, like... Oh, institutions. Funding for starting something, or funding for uh, trips? I would say for an, activ for an activity. It could be for a mission trip. I'm really... I'm just getting familiar. We had a meeting here with Klaus and Jan and Jens, and I asked them to, to help me understand what it is ASI Europe likes to do, because I'm brand new at this. I'm not brand well, new. Well, they, they support also activities like impact, uh, impact, whatever. They have Europe for Jesus uh, mm -hmm. right. conference, uh, and they, they have supported this kind mm -hmm. of evangelistic also. And we like to see people be creative. You know, there needs, we've been doing, essentially, we've been doing evangelism the same way for 150 years. And that's not negative. But in this day and age, there's new ways that we should be creating and envisioning, dreaming, to reach people for God. You know, not, not simply the one way we've always, we've always approached it. Okay. Enough but enough. <laughs> If you think we can help you or encourage you in your the work God's called you, that's what we're here from an ASI or from an OCI perspective yes. uh, to do. Yes. Yes. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to trying to get down there to visit.
they faced many, very, you know, many difficulties in, in Italy. Uh, some I'm aware of, some I'm not aware of. And uh, we need God's grace. We mm-hmm. need you for years, most of all. Amen. Part of the problem is our Italian temper, like this. <laughs> 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 uh, I thought it was the Irish that had the temper, the Italians too. If the beast decided to put his nest in Italy, maybe the reason <laughs> he has some reason. I don't know why they decided to put it in Africa. <laughs> Shall we stand together? Our gracious Father, we again come to you. We thank you that as weak, as defective as we are, that you're still very willing to use us in your service. And we know that when we accepted Jesus as our Savior, we know that you have a work for each one of us to do. That you want to use us to be a blessing to others in this world. Father, I pray that you will do just that. I ask your blessing on each one that's here as they go home. May you give them inspiration. May you give them strength and wisdom as they serve you. In the simple everyday duties of life, may we have your grace. May we have your spirit. May you teach us how to speak a word of encouragement to those that are beside us. How to support them and be a blessing in their lives. May we take the work that lies nearest to us and do it faithfully. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org. Dot audioverse.org.